Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So no whistling backstage. Remember only dead flowers before the performance. And join us on our journey through Masquerade and the complete discography. Tonight, we are recording, discussing the 19th book in the Discworlds series by Terry Pratchett, Masquerade, a novel of Discworld. Uh, it is copyright uh, 1995. Uh, the first HarperCollins printing of it was 1997. Um, and the dedication, my thanks to the people who showed me that opera was stranger than I could imagine. I can best repay their kindness by not mentioning their names here. <laughs> and as is tradition, uh, let's talk about our titles. I am Aaron, unassuming theater fly technician. Ah! Uh, I'm Anna. Uh, I don't know why, but somebody made me responsible for hurting the actors playing the cats in Cats. I'm Justin, and I have had to say the word hippopotamonstrosis quipedalia phobia on stage, and I have nailed it every fucking time. Dang straight. Nice. And our guest for the evening, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, I am Coast, or Coaster Child. Um, I cannot sing. But like our dear Agnes Knit, I have a great personality. <laughs> I can't guarantee that. <laughs> well, and more seriously, uh, we invited Coast on because they are the premier internet specialist in Phantom of the Opera, which uh, this book kind of broadly lampoons, I guess. Um, <laughs> it, it does it a little bit less than I remembered, to be entirely honest. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, I basically hang out on the internet and yell about things that I'm interested in. That's that's the most relevant information, really. Um, and in uh, early 2020, shortly after, you know, everything happened, um, my, my dear friend Melanie uh, got me into Phantom of the Opera, which I really had no interest in before whatsoever. Um, and then it it snowballed. Like I just, I was like, I, I watched the the 25th anniversary Royal Albert Hall edition, and just it just, I don't know, I, it's something terrible clicked in in my brain, and now I love a terrible opera ghost. I don't know why, um, but yeah, and so yeah, now now I yell about Phantom of the Opera, and also getting the ninth and hair of the ninth on the internet. That's basically all I do. <laughs> Was this your first uh, Discworld book? Kind of, sort of. Um, I did actually read a couple of them, like, probably over a decade ago. Like, I I remember reading Equal Rights. I couldn't tell you anything that happens in it, but I do remember, like, getting it at the bookstore and reading it. Uh, and I think I read another one, but I don't even remember what. So, so like, I'm, I've been vaguely familiar with, with Discworld and Terry Pratchett and, like, kind of absorbed some of it by osmosis. But this was, like, the first book that, like, I could actually tell you what happened in it. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I feel like it's sort of broadly hard to avoid in our particular circles of literary nerd fandom. Um, and have you, just out of curiosity, have you written any any takes on a Phantom uh, Harrow AU? <laughs> uh, I think I have. I think I might have an old 
tweet thread. But I think I, I think the first one that I thought of was like um, a modern AU that was like Harrow was like haunting the college library and Gideon like worked at the gym or something. <laughs> like I don't even know. I have no. I don't remember what I was even going for there. But it was. But it involved Harrow being the opera ghost and Gideon being our Christine. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all I remember, but also I mean yeah I could give me give me like ten minutes I could I could spin you out a whole a whole plot for for a locked tomb Phantom of the Opera AU beautiful. <laughs> well, speaking of plot, uh, I'm just going to quickly touch on what happens in the book. Uh, we start out in the Ram Tops three months after the events of Lords and Ladies, with Granny and Nanny coming to terms with only being two thirds of a coven. We also learned that Nanny has had some free time on her hands and sent what can loosely be described as a manuscript to a publishing house in Agmorpork, which has uh, subsequently been published as The Joy of Snacks to Hem Hem growing acclaim. Uh, Granny being able to count past two, uh, and to be honest, she's actually repeatedly quite an accomplished accountant in this book, in addition to all of her other skills, uh, decide to take a trip into the city to check up on Nanny's missing royalties, of which there are quite a bit, and also to check up on a young woman of Lanker descent who showed promise as a witch back in Lords and Ladies, uh, Agnes Knit. Agnes, now going by Perdita, has the strong lungs of a mountain-raised woman and some u- unique natural singing talents, including apparently throat singing and throwing her voice, which is kind of exotic. Uh, The Opera House is owned by retired cheesemonger Seldom Bucket and managed with assistance from the musical director Sal Zella and the chorus master Dr. Undershaft. It's also frequented by a masked ghost who has often sent letters to the management reviewing performances and giving instructions. Lately, the Opera Ghost has also taken to committing murders and sabotaging performances. Agnes Knit impresses Undershaft with her powerful and versatile voice and is invited to join the chorus. She meets Christine, who is more popular and more attractive in a conventional manner, but far less talented. The ghost wants Christine to take on the next lead role. However, as Agnes is a far better singer, she's asked to sing over Christine, unknown to Christine or the audience. After obtaining Nanny's payment from the publishers, the witches arrive at the opera house and begin investigating the actions of the opera ghost. Granny disguises herself as a wealthy audience member, burning through Nanny's newfound wealth to teach Nanny a lesson, while Nanny uh, sort of insinuates herself into the staff. The opera ghost strikes again that evening when Undercroft is murdered and his body appears on display in the middle of the performance. Agnes discovers that the caretaker, Walter Plinge, appears to be the opera ghost, but also, to all intents and purposes, appears to be harmless, and the other uh, major characters are unconvinced. The pianist, Andre, is also suspected, but it turns out that he was only an undercover officer for the City Watch, his clandestine activities being concealed by the aimless stumbling around of knobs and detritus, and by the fact that he's actually an accomplished musician. It is finally revealed that the opera ghost was actually being played by two different people. Walter Plinge was the original opera ghost, and he was responsible for the more harmless activities. Nanny also discovers that in the basement of the opera house, Plinge has composed several operas and musicals of his own. On the other hand, the murders and sabotage that the opera ghost committed were committed by Salzella. He used this in order to distract people from his pretty significant money laundering activities. With the witch's help, Plinge confronts Salzella on stage and defeats him in a sword fight. Salzella dies after making a prolonged and melodramatic monologue about how much he hates opera. 
In a stroke of witchery, the physical mask that Plinge wore as the ghost has been replaced by a hetological one, which leads him to be more put together, I guess. The witches depart Ankh-Morpork rich in experience, if not in royalties. Eventually, Agnes follows, realizing that her destiny is not to be hidden behind with the successes of one woman, but to join the coven. So, uh, shorter than normal summary, because it's kind of a bottle episode of a book. There's a lot that happens, but not a lot of plot. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that that's a accurate description. So, main characters in this book are, of course, Granny and Nanny, uh, who uh, are now, I think this is the fifth book that fourth book that both of them have appeared in and the fifth book that granny has appeared in so they're pretty established and they're, they're really solid in this book yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. i i really enjoyed them i could i could kind of like feel that they were clearly like the very established characters that were that were there um and yeah they they're by far like the most fun part of the book it had a vibe almost of like one of those bbc like two old ladies investigate a murder mystery kind of show yeah it's like the eighth movie that those two actresses have done together Mm -hmm. and you can feel the energy off of that like everyone else has been hired off for this movie but this is like these two ladies it's the eighth movie they've done together and and they're just vibing Mm -hmm. and doing script rewrites (laughs) perdita uh aka agnes is also much more i don't know she she was I think Terry sort of played with like pointing out the fact that she was a actual witch in Lords and Ladies or had the, had the makings of one because, you know, Diamanda had that whole uh, mm-hmm. sort of nouveau coven that she was yeah. positioning, you know, but of all of the sort of poser witches, I feel like Terry was pretty clear that Agnes was the only one that, and this may, this is sort of something that he, really doesn't full he like it's closer in this book but really doesn't fully emerge until we get to the tiffany aching books uh <laughs> so justin i promise tiffany aching is like the the best part of the witch's books well and uh and agnes is interesting in that she's kind of got she's kind of got two sides like she's got the kind of like gothic side that you know enjoys you know, wearing the the black lace gloves and being glamorous and dramatic and everything. And she's got the like very sensible side. And one would think that it'd be the gothic side that would make her a witch. But no, mm-hmm. it's the sensible side where she's the person who's like, hmm, what is that? Is that actually how that works? That doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really the, the, you see the emergence, which he doesn't really put into all caps yet, but second thoughts is what I think he is really positioning, you know, and we, we'll, we'll dive into the witches stuff later, um, because I think that a lot of, a lot of stuff is further developed in, in that theory of his in, in this book, if it's not really like laid out concretely. Yeah, she, she's one of the people who kind of has the ability to take a step back and examine what's going on without preconceptions. And there's some bits of the characterization of her that we hate, and we'll talk about those later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's Christine with lots of exclamation points. Uh, (laughs) I love Christine. (laughs) She's so awful, and I love her. Uh, This this Christine, I I don't know. Do we want to, like, dive into the characters? Okay. Sure. this Christine I love because, I mean, not only is she kind of just delightful in her own right, um, just, yeah, uh, but also she's 
functionally in the story, she is both the Christine and the Carlotta, while also just kind of being her own like ditzy, like, you know, I don't, it's, she's just a a delightful combination of things in this story. That's very funny to me. Yeah. And, you know, repeatedly Agnes is like, interesting. She fainted very dramatically in a way that like wouldn't actually end up hurting her. Yeah. And displayed her dress so nicely. (laughs) I think she's like, she's the combination of like, Christina has to be in some way like aware of the genre she is, but she's also like a really spoiled rich girl. So like she does things like she wakes up from fainting. She's like, where am I? Which Agnes is just like, people don't actually ask where am I? Yeah. People who think about what they say when they're going to faint ask where am I? Yeah. It's kind of interesting because there there's really an implication that there's more to her than meets the eye. It would have been interesting if we had delved into that a little bit, but c'est la vie, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a little bit more to her, I think. Um, just wasn't really explored. I'm realizing I forgot one more important character from Lanker, who, which is Grebo. Grebo! Yes, we get the return of Grebo. <laughs> um, and he is so much better than the last time we saw him. We get, we get a return. It looks like his Wolverine soda has, uh, like, I don't know, maybe it's tempered him out, like, but he's like, he's a lot more chill in this. And then when he returns to the Wolverine patch, just like, okay, Creepo is Hugh Jackman. That's, that's what <laughs> yeah. he is. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just like a big greasy dude. Um, he, but he's like, when he comes back to it, he's like much less like, I'm going to do creepy things to women. He's much more just like, yes, whatever granny says. <laughs> I'm going to do anything for a kipper. <laughs> is that, is that Grievous' backstory that he did creepy things to women and now he's a cat or no, no. what? <laughs> like, so when he was originally introduced, like, as like a character, he was just this awful cat, and it's like yeah. that like he like you know assaults other cats. Yeah, the, that it's <laughs> well, the, hey. it was really like he puts the the Tom and Tom cat, uh, gotcha. and previously that there was more leaning into that. In, in, in a Cinderella pastiche, there was a um, he was briefly turned into a human, and his his morphological field has never quite reasserted itself entirely. So now he's sort of. You know, as as is described in the uh, in the book, he has four uh, four options in when he's confronted, which is run, hide, crap, or turn human. <laughs> which feels like a very like PBTA playbook kind of thing. Yes, I feel like I feel like we could design a micro RPG around that. We've also got like the general. So so okay, this is the thing that I like couldn't remember. Is Bucket the same accountant from the the, the 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 Musicians Guild? I don't think so. No. Okay. I, he's, I, a, like, he's a former cheesemonger who decided to take up opera-ing as a retirement. Okay. For some reason, I like mentally associated the two, but then I was like, oh, maybe not. But also that guy died, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, and we we also have the thing of like Bucket doesn't really understand the opera, but mm-hmm. and he's not kind of of the opera, but he does like it. He has good intentions, I'd say, versus the musicians guild jackass. Yeah. He just doesn't understand why they why they use so many shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe if the ballerina spent more time in the air, 
Honestly, that is that, that is like one of my favorites. Fair. But the answer, as it turns out, as in most financial situations, is money laundering. Yeah. <laughs> now, is this money laundering or is it embezzling, though? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's money laundering if you're putting something in, if you're if you're cleaning the money with it. Um, yeah, no, this is probably just pure embezzlement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but very craftily done. Yeah, it's only money laundering if the if um, Thieves Guild was taking a huge amount of money and running it through the opera house to clean it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Walter Plinge, who is, I don't know, reads to me as at least coded neuroatypical. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> there's a lot of very specific, very nerdy jokes uh, that Terry makes with this character because he is one half of the opera ghost. Uh, but he apparently, according to Space, is described very, uh, very reminiscent of a character in a BBC sitcom uh, some mothers do have them, uh, which I've never a, heard that's of. That's a deep cut. <laughs> um, but the joke is that the actor who played the the character he's based on was Michael Crawford, who went on to play the Phantom in the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Yes, uh, I I did not know. Like I didn't I didn't put any of the Walter Plinge stuff together with that. But like I knew I knew those parts individually like i knew that michael crawford was like in this british comedy and then he uh was the phantom blah 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 mm-hmm. um but that's that that like made the, the character of walter plinch so much better for me like when i read that in your synopsis like earlier today i was like oh that's so funny <laughs> and then the name is a something that theater people in the uk would understand uh because it apparently is a generic pseudonym used in the theater world by an actor who has two different roles in the same play, which is, again, super nerdy. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, uh, forgive me if, I, if I'm misremembering it, but don't they kind of call that out in the book? Like, don't they say, like, don't they have, like, some some role mm-hmm. and they, like, just put Walter's name in? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Terry, yet again, is just like, hey, look at all these things that I just know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's an, he's an interesting character, though. Yeah, he is. It's it's interesting how he's coded. It's interesting how th- there's there's a theme that's sort of an undercurrent of this book, which is this idea of like the masks we wear. But we can we can talk about that when we get to themes, I guess. Or we can talk about it now. I don't care. I'm not the boss. Well, I I would say that it's it's interesting to think about Walter, um, since we just read another book with and not that dissimilar character of Banjo. They both fall into the category of, you know, person whose intellect is underestimated at the very least, yeah. or who are neurotypical, etc. I read Banjo primarily as, like, developmentally delayed, yeah. whereas Walter yeah. feels maybe, like, either autistic-coded or... Or something similar. And I like Walter a lot better. But I'm not a doctor. I, I like I like Walter a lot better than I like Banjo. Because mm-hmm. the book kind of directly plays with people's assumptions about him that, you know, nobody is surprised that, you know, he could be potentially the ghost because, you know, he, there's something always a bit off about him. And But then again, we have Granny and Nanny looking at him and saying, you know, he 
might be tangled up inside, but he's not twisted. Like he's not a bad person. He's just different. Yeah, it, it's definitely playing with the the tradition of of coding villains, you know, as different. Yeah, and I and I liked having the textual bit of you know somebody you know verbally confirming that like he's not bad, right? Like the that mm-hmm. you know Granny Granny saying that he's not twisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bit with the fire was good. Yeah. So, so Walter Plinge and the whole the whole splitting the ghost into two different people um, thing, I, I I enjoy it. I think it's really, I think I, I think it's a very interesting way to like tell that story, and I and I think that Walter Plinge is a, is an interesting character for that. Um, but it's also it's also strange to me because it is so different from like the the like theme of Phantom of the Opera, like the theme of Eric, the the opera ghost. Like the whole point of him is you know that he's. He's this person who's been like so horribly mistreated and like has gotten like just the short end of the deal every time in his whole life. And it's kind of made him into this, you know, monster and whatever. And and it's just interesting to me that this is like it just it just kind of chooses not to engage with that. It's just like, oh, actually, nope, we're just going to split off and make one person who does the murders who's bad and one person who doesn't do the murders who's fine. Like, um, and I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. I think since since this is more like a pastiche and not, you know, an actual adaptation, I think that's totally a fine choice to make. It's just like if this were an adaptation, I'd be like, what did you do? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because you know, I think it does tie in because Walter also has kind of gotten the short end of the stick a lot during oh, his sure. life versus Salzella, who, as far as I can tell, has had his life handed to him. And yeah, it, that's the thing. I I don't think I don't think like the message is wrong or anything. Um, it's just like I said, it's it's taking it's taking the bad things out of the Phantom Sing and being like, oh look, now he's sympathetic because he doesn't do the murders. <laughs> and yeah. It's like, oh well, if you make him not do the murders, then yeah, it's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But but that the the thing of like saying that Eric got the short end of the stick and ended up turning into a monster, but that's not the only path. Yeah. Either yeah, no, either I, it, for you know. Um, that's not the only way that you can turn end up, uh, and it's not the only way to become a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I personally think it's a little bit of an, like an inversion, um, just because it's like it, it's Walter. Like he's not exactly like a value. Like he's not like oh hey, it's just like one of the family. But he's like he is accepted like in the theater, and I think that like as somebody who likes the community of the theater, it's like, it's, it, you know, it tends to be a very accepting place. And I think it's interesting because like, instead of, you know, becoming somebody who obsesses and, um, does murders, Walter instead, like he's most, he's like a help. Like he basically starts, like the ghost starts off basically as like a helpful critic, <laughs> um and then by the end of it he's like look i want to give back to this i've made stuff and like look we're gonna make musicals we're we're, we're, we're going to make the greatest art form that there is <laughs> <laughs> i love that come oh, at God. me come at me musicals are the greatest art form we have as a, as a species <laughs> listen a year ago i might not have understood that but now i'm in it i'm in it i'm with you uh i would now i I wish I had taken more notes of like the the actual musicals that like they reference him like God, doing because I know that so like many. Cats is in there, um, but I think there's other ones too where like specifically Miserable like references. Less. Yeah. Yes, yes, Se- yes, yes. Seven dwarves for seven other dwarves. <laughs> God, really good. 
And that's playing on the thing that dwarves don't have uh, outwardly appearing gender, typically. Uh, so seven dwarves for seven other dwarves <laughs> is brilliant. <laughs> Uh, That's really good. And then also, Darren Nieper Lundgren. It's just like banana, na 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 Yeah, so many, yeah, and also just sort of dunking on Andrew Lloyd Webber all the time. Yeah, uh, which is always a good time. There could have been more Grebo Cats jokes. There, there should have been more Grebo <laughs> yeah, Cats yeah. jokes. Honestly, yeah. 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 Sad, it's, it's sad that trades don't exist in Discworld. <laughs> well... Not yet. Yet. <laughs> okay. Come uh, on, come on, come on, uh, Terry. Make a reannual joke about uh, Starlight Express. <laughs> We've already we we got a joke about Starlight Express back in um, <laughs> ages ago. That's what yeah. We sh- what the fuck book was it? It was the one where the Weird Sisters. Hmm. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yes, the the infamous the infamous note, entry in my notes is that a fucking tra- trades reference. <laughs> yep. Uh, and there's a bunch of other characters too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Walter has a mom. Apparently, is aware that he's the ghost. Um, there's various other yeah. miscellaneous theater folks, some of whom get murdered. Some of whom get murdered. Yeah. Gotta As you do. So I want to talk about something that I was like a little bit weirded out by about murder in this book. So we have established and I don't want to be that dude, but this did take me out of the storm because it's weird. and It goes against like everything like that we've associated with death and Discworld for a joke, which is that the rat catcher gets turned into a rat <laughs> despite the fact that he doesn't believe in it. Yeah, that was interesting. That, yeah. that feels very weird because it's basically the opposite of every death-related thing. And I get that it's the death of rats. And maybe the death of rats plays under different rules. But but it's just it feels like that was a weird I mean the inversion. death of the death of rats is a right bastard sometimes, so. Yeah, okay. That, I, I, I haven't seen many things from death of rats point of view. <laughs> I could also I could also think that like maybe that was something deep in his psyche Hmm. of like, you know, I've killed so many rats, you know, someday they're going to come for me. Yeah. That, that could be something that was hidden, hidden deep. And it took some, some headology on the part of the death of rats. Maybe, but that's not really how it's framed in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, I don't believe in reincarnation. No reincarnation believes in you. It's, it's like, it's a very like specific flip, which I find like just very weird. Just yeah. wait, just wait until you meet dangerous beans. You you see these things that I have no context for. <laughs> I know it's fun. I, I I'm legitimately sure that Era just makes up stuff now. I should. I'm not that yeah. smart. I mean, mentioning the rat catcher kind of made me think of. Uh, just just broadly speaking, I was I was kind of surprised. A I was surprised by like. Given the fact that obviously the the plot is is very dissimilar from Phantom of the Opera, it it manages to like pull in a lot of things and like make little nods and like 
a ton of ways. And a lot of those ways are felt to me, at least more like nods to the book than to the musical, even though obviously like when this came out, it would have been the musical that was like on everybody's mind. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I was just, I, I, it was just kind of like a pleasant surprise. I was like, Oh, like that's like a book detail. And Oh, that's a musical thing. Oh, that's another book detail. Like there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And like the rat catcher felt more like that. Cause like the rat catcher technically sort of makes an appearance in the musical, but he's not like a thing. Mm. And in the book, he's like there kind of unnecessarily, but he's there. <laughs> <laughs> which actually that, that brings up, um, a thought for me, which is that I feel like we should all say what our, like, experience is with phantom of the opera oh yeah because yeah. i don't think we love to know because we know we know that coast is super into it <laughs> <laughs> so, simply consumed too much here and let's make you feel old now. yeah i saw phantom at least twice on school trips uh to yes. the uh San, the very very long running uh, production of it at the Orpheum in uh, San Francisco in the 90s. Um, and it was I'm so quite an experience because they had a big gold chandelier that definitely fell at the beginning of the, at the end of the first act. Yes. And Beautiful. when you're not expecting it, boy, there's a lot of shrieks. <laughs> I've been in that theater during an earthquake, uh, <laughs> a little, little tiny one. Uh, so I got to see that. Sh- I got to see a chandelier in there shake, but that was not for Phantom because I've never seen Phantom or read it, with the notable exception of the 1995 Wishbone uh, adaptation. Yep, I was going to say we're we're about the same. That um, my the the pieces of Phantom that I have in at least the forefront of my brain are the Wishbone episode, the uh, violin version of the music that plays in the umbrella academy oh uh uh-huh and also that there's a lot of references in one of vivian shaw's vampire books i'll take your word for it and that's it (laughs) good great basis so that's that's where we all are we we've got the the solid wishbone foundation yeah that's all you need that's all you need and honestly raul's so much more likable when he's an adorable dog it's fine um, I do want to like actually point out the name of the Wishbone episode, which was Panson at the Opera. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Honestly, beautiful. That's a... Okay, so uh, I just because I have had this stuck in my head for the last week, ever since the organ was first mentioned, I had to look up. And in fact, the organ at the San, at the new Orpheum in San Francisco is a, is a historically listed organ. And they have full details on the pipe organ database, which is a real website. Um, uh, it, it was built in 1926. It has four manuals, 21 ranks, including a notable 32 foot pipe. Uh, which is uh, on one of the pedals. So I have had stuck in my head for days. <laughs> I apologize, but also good. So that's our phantom. I, so I'm I'm curious, Aaron. Like how how much do you think you remember from having seen it back in your school days? I I mean I remember the broad strokes. I remember there there's certain set pieces I remember. Like the Mask of the Red Death uh, oh, yes. reference, where which is uh, Justin. I don't know if you got to that part in the book, but there's a there's a nod to that at the end, 
death shows up in the outfit that I remember the phantom wearing. I remember my background, the, uh, yes. sing to me, sing to me, you know, that <laughs> stuff. Uh, and sing. because a lo- several of the trips were choir trips, I remember the music pretty distinctly. It slaps. That score slaps. I mean, it's peak Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, whatever whatever you want to interpret from that it is peak Andrew Lloyd Webber I'm willing to go on record that it slaps <laughs> absolutely start to finish it's got earworms for sure yeah which honestly for me that's kind of enough like mm-hmm. if I can remember a song after I'm like yeah that was a good song no I mean it's 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 just you know it's a it's a spectacle of a musical for sure mm-hmm uh, especially the the sort of authentic Andrew Lloyd Webber stagings. I feel like I might have seen at least part of the m- earlier movie version. Mm. Where, which there's so many movie versions. Which one do you mean? <laughs> uh, the one that's referred to in the book with the 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 Man of a Thousand Faces. Um, oh, um, the the 1920s Lon Chaney one. Yeah, the Lon Chaney one. Yeah, that one's a hoot. I was just looking at the like adaptations to see if there was like maybe something that i like didn't remember or something mm-hmm. this is the best entry because i i because just any time i see a reference to this aborted film project the better on june 20 <laughs> or on june 6 2017 alex kurtzman announced a new fan of the opera film as part of universal's dark universe yes 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 the dark <laughs> which, universe which is so funny to me <laughs> Uh, also the idea Frankenstein the idea and that, the Phantom so all the other Universal Monsters I can kind of understand like trying to make them into a franchise I mean you know it's still going to be Hollywood schlock whatever but like the Phantom of the Opera specifically trying to make him into like a franchise character is like so ridiculous <laughs> I mean so don't get me wrong Andrew Lloyd Webber tried it we can talk about Love Never Dies but I will never stop talking about it so we shouldn't but but yeah the the Phantom of the Opera is not a character made for sequels I mean he could like insinuate himself into different opera houses and join different productions True. and <laughs> just do that over and over again feels like a very like narrow universe like, and, yeah. then, and then there's that and then there's that one version where he makes all the cats compete for who is best cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's actually cat god. That's how we tie it all in. He's um, the he's the cat god that they're all trying to yeah. appease. And then I think in another one he's a train that fucks, right? Yes, to steal from system mastering folks, he's a train that fucks. <laughs> we're we're creating the Andrew Lloyd Webber cinematic universe. And it's it's a horror show, but we're doing it. You know, <laughs> we're stealing it from the dark universe. We're like, actually, we don't need the mummy in here. We just need all the musicals to become one. Although a mummy musical would be pretty good if we're talking oh. like the 1990s one. Oh, like a musical adaptation of the Brendan Fraser mummy. Hell movie? yeah, that oh movie's so yeah, good. Yeah, I watch it. <laughs> I, I legitimately am just like. Like I, I'm like I'm doing like the 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 white woman math thing right now. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can see this. I can do this. Mm-hmm. This can happen. <laughs> I can get abs. I can I could be Rick O'Connell. <laughs> yes. Anna, you were had a question about what Granny was punishing Nanny for. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that that always felt kind of vague to me. Um, you know that. <laughs> you know, there's all the stuff of like that. 
Granny drags Nanny to the city to get to get her money for royalties, and then is like, "Fuck you, Nanny!" and spends every penny of it, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't quite like. It's vindictive in a way that doesn't quite make sense to me. Also, I feel like they should have gotten at least like something of a finder's fee from the opera for finding all of that money. Like, there's so much. There's so much. There's like bags of gold down there. Like, couldn't they have gotten mm-hmm. like, you know, train fare or, you know, carriage fare at the very least? Agreed. They deserve something. I, I kind of had the same feeling. I was like, I don't, like, I don't know why Granny's being so like, vindictive about this money but i mean i kind of i don't know i I, not really knowing their dynamic as well obviously from outside the books i just kind of assumed it was like her being a little bit like resentful of nanny hog like like she wanted to make sure that nanny got paid what she was owed but also she's like well now you're rich i don't like that like i don't like that power dynamic shift Uh uh-uh and just kind of you know yeah insinuated herself into it to to clear that up a little bit yeah it would it would have been nice if she'd left Nanny something though. Yeah, they're now rich in experiences. Mm-hmm. So, what are our like broad impressions of the book? Coast, do you um, want to go first on this one? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, I mean, I I don't have any strong thoughts. I mean, I thought it was a I thought it was a fun enough story. Yeah, I thought I thought it was it did a, a good job of like balancing like you know like little references and little, you know, little nods to what it's, what it's referencing um, without feeling like it's like bogged down in that, like it tells its own story and, and the characters are engaging. Um, And like I, like I said earlier, like, I think, I think Granny and Nanny are like the, by far the most interesting parts of, of the book, which is saying something. Cause like, I was like, you know, scouring the pages for like phantom stuff. And I was, but every time they had a scene, I was like, yay, (laughs) like, this is great. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I know there's like the thing that I think we all disliked about it. Um, but, but other than that, I mean, I, I thought it was fine. It didn't like blow me away, but it was fine. And if you, if you liked Granny and Nanny, then, um, then I think you'll walk away from this with, uh, with some other book recommendations too. Uh, I felt like the first like roughly half was a slog for me to get through. I remembered liking this a lot more than I did this time around, but things started moving at around the halfway point. That's also roughly when the constant onslaught of fat jokes at least taper off and you get more plot. There's like motion with what's happening with the phantom. Things are happening and and it kind of takes off at that point, which is interesting because it's the the opposite of the pacing that we've had in a lot of the recent books that we've read um where the front half builds to a very high point and then it just keeps building after that um the the first half was slow so that was that was my kind of broad impressions i feel like the books that i've reread a lot in the past decade have been the later books and again, this is this is one that I remember reading and I remember sort of broadly enjoying, probably because I glossed over certain bits. Um, and reading it again, having read the later stuff that he does with witches in particular, it feels like he's noodling around with ideas in this and just sort of like playing with things and being like, 
oh, maybe this, well, maybe that, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel formed. It feels like he's just sort of, it, it feels like, you know, when you go to a comedy club and like somebody goes up and starts, starts workshopping instead of actually putting stuff out there. Cause it's a lot of jokes and not much plot and not much sociopolitical commentary, which yeah. is something that, you know, I feel like a lot of other Terry books that I really like are more leaning on. Yeah, there's definitely not a lot of social political commentary, which is interesting considering like what it's referencing. Like I feel like I feel like there is a fair amount of that in in Phantom. Like if you dig even the slightest bit below the surface, especially, well, I don't know if it's especially in the book. I think both the book and the musical kind of the the novel Phantom of the Opera. Um I think they approach it in different ways, but they kind of come away with roughly the same message. Um but it is. It's like it it does kind of have like a message for it. And yeah, you're you're right that this this one, I mean, it does have like those little lessons kind of sprinkled throughout, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it has like, you know, an overarching like. Oh, uh, so we're going to be frankly honest here. This is my first DNF for uh, the Discworld series, which is, uh, it is time and content related. Um, for like my process in this, I start reading the book about a week before recording because, you know, usually I can crank through that and it's like, I usually can power through it. Uh, even if I'm like not particularly enjoying it, but for like the first five days, I tried to read this anytime I got into uh, the sort of minefield of uh, fat jokes. It's like it took me out of it, and I'm just like, I'm not interested in reading this. And like I powered through it. It's like I got through uh, about seventy five percent of the book, but it just like it was like yeah, there wasn't it, it wasn't a book that I was like. Normally it's like I will like set aside time and I'll like work around time to finish it off before the recording. But this one, I'm just like, I'm sort of okay with it being a DNF. It was a book that like, it's like those jokes are obvious enough that it took me out of the experience and like didn't want to continue the book. Yeah, it took me about three weeks to read this. Which like the musical stuff is fun. I, I, as, as. One of the big theater people, and I, no, I think this is a podcast that is entirely filled with theater lovers. But it's like, um, as as somebody who loves like theater and stuff, it's like it's like, oh yeah, this should be right up my alley. But and the parts that I do, like I love all the granny and nanny stuff. But just I kept bouncing off this book. I like the stuff I do like, but there's just like it's a big detractor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It, this isn't to excuse the the you know any of it, but like they weren't even they weren't even attempts at jokes really. It was like just references. It was like, Oh yeah. yeah. And she's like, fat. In case you forgot. Yeah. And it yeah. was all just one long shaggy dog set up to the, the, the one thing everybody wow. knows about opera. And like, it was just a bummer. Yeah. yeah. Like not, yeah. not good craft at all. Yeah. Which it uh, is, is, yeah, it's a big bummer to me because I other other than that, I really liked Agnes Knit. Um and I even like I like the fact that she's she's a fat protagonist and is just you know, yeah. she's she's doing her thing and she see and she feels very believable. Like other than the fact that, you know, they made like half of her internal monologue about liking chocolates or something, like if you cut that stuff out, she's still a very compelling like character. I and I really enjoyed her. Um and I wouldn't change anything about like who she is it's just like just tone tone down constantly referencing her fatness please yeah and yeah. like there's even a few times when she 
thinks, I'm really tired of being called fat. And I'm like, Terry, listen to your characters. Please. She's she's begging you. Ugh. Yeah. It, it felt like um, a return to the first book with Magrat in it, where every single scene with her, it's like, you know, she has a flat chest. By the way, did oh, you remember? No. Did you remember? And this is the thing that we've seen before with Terry in regards to like fat characters. This is a uh, um, like we we've seen this before. I, I cannot recall um, like specific instances of this because uh, like I think there's a couple in like the Rincewind books. Um, probably most recently, or most obviously with uh, Sybil Ramkin. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all of the wizards. Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 treated differently in the wizards. I feel like you know it's. I never have a problem with it with the wizards, whereas here it's just like, ugh. and it's so disappointing because you know it's like Terry. I thought I thought you'd grown out of this. Like you know you're better than this. And that I I think I think part of it is like you can tell that. I, at least at least to me, it doesn't seem like he, he wants us to, like... Like, he doesn't want us, the audience, to make fun of her for being fat. Like, he doesn't... Like, it, it doesn't seem like there's actually malice in it. It just seems like he thinks that it's, like, you know, like a funny narrative choice to, like, keep making making her body the butt of these jokes. Like, and it... it I don't know. It just... Yeah, it sucks because, like, like I said, I don't get the feeling that he, as an author, dislikes this character... It just kind of sucks to have it hammered over and over and over again. Yeah. Honestly, something that it reminds me of, or at least just something else I've been watching recently, uh, in, in the TV show Invincible, which is based off the um, comic uh, by uh, Robert Kirkman and Cory Walker, um, there's a scene where, or there's a, there's a character in the show who uh, she has reality manipulative power. So like one of the most powerful people in the show and she wears like the traditional, like, like you like sort of like swimsuit costume and a character calls her out on it. And she's like, excuse me, I designed my own costume. And it's like, yes, but you have to, but, but yes, the two men designed this costume. Yeah. (laughs) It's you do not get to, you do not get to relieve yourself of it by acknowledging it in the narrative. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure that the same thing has happened, like uh, possibly happened with multiple like big name superheroes, but I think specifically with power girl in DC comics with the infamous boob window. Like, I think there's, there there may even be more than one, but there's at least like one like infamous like panel about her, like having this like heartfelt conversation about how it really hurts her feelings when people make fun of her boob window (laughs) because it's really important to her emotionally. And it's like, no, it's important to you because horny dudes drew you like that's yeah. what it is <laughs> and it's like it's 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 like obviously like it's a different thing that we're talking about but it's like it's yeah. the same sort of thing of like you can't like, like you're lampshading, you lampshading it. it yeah doesn't make it better yeah it doesn't make it not what it is mm-hmm. it, it reminds me to two of the um like responses to criticisms of like say faith from buffy and like her portrayal and people being like, oh, are you slut-shaming the character? It's like, no, I'm criticizing how the character is written. Yeah, These are mm-hmm. different concepts. And yes. we've seen in other books that Terry can do long walk jokes that are funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like the Def Leppard joke in Soul Music is hilarious. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because he never tells you the punchline. But he <laughs> he gives you portions of the lead up again and again and again. To the point where you're like, aha. But like the, you know, it's not over until the fat lady sings. That's a boring joke. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it's like if you could imagine the punchline of your joke being the uh, being the punchline of a screwball forties comedy that people would not even find funny. Like you probably shouldn't. Like if I could put on a mid mid Atlantic accent to say it, and it would just like get eye rolls. Then no, we shouldn't do it. <laughs> okay. So yeah, the the that is the thing that is the gigantic smoking turd in the middle of the book. Yeah. Well, I think we have some I think we have some ideas for like how that could be rectified, but but let's talk about like themes and stuff first perhaps. I wrote a really fucking stupid fix it fic. Uh, so <laughs> Oh, oh. Yes, I saw this. <laughs> Like, the main theme of the book, I feel like, is, in fact, like, masks and, oh, hey, identity. Um, <laughs> like every witch's book. Like every witch's book. But, like, the, you know, it's the fact that, that Agnes has this duality of, of that, that she can sort of put on these two different characters. Um, the Walter putting on two different you know putting on the separate character the ghost being two characters and granny and nanny there's a lot of um there's a lot of dual what is it dualism that's probably the wrong word but there's duality duality, yeah probably duality um there's a lot of you know setting two identities against each other and then at the end there's even dueling there is Mm. did a bump the way that Granny gives Walter that invisible mask, weirdly enough, actually reminds me of things that I've heard performers talk about. I, I know several people who, who do performance, you know, semi-professionally, and a lot of them would describe themselves as really severe introverts. Uh, but they have learned to put on the character of themselves to, to go out on stage. And that's that was what rem, that's what the that invisible mask scene reminded me of. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And with the ways that Walter is coded as not being neurotypical, there's also the concept of masking as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there's also you know again as with a lot of the witches books, there's a lot with like morality. Mm. Nanny might steal but she's not a thief because right. she doesn't think like a thief right <laughs> Just, okay. God, that, that is the most like I, I i'm pretty sure i've heard this exact same argument from some dirtbag co-workers i've had <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't think about I, I don't think like a thief so i'm not a thief. and i feel yeah it feels like granny is also thinking about this the entire book and and really like she's really struggling this entire book with like am i going to become black alice yeah mm-hmm. we have granny with that question about what would you take out of the burning house which mm-hmm. she's using to kind of assess people the answers were great yeah such good answers that we have you know, we've got the gamut from nanny who's like oh well i would 
I would take my kitty cat because that means that I'm warm hearted. And <laughs> Granny is just like, no, that means that you're a conniving person who's trying to come up with the right answer. Yeah. Versus the the cop, the undercover cop, who's like, who started the fire? <laughs> and then and then we have Walter who would take the fire out of the burning house. Obviously. Which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. I feel like Walter would make a good witch. Mm. My my only thoughts are kind of just like how how it relates to to Phantom, like how how the end, like the ghost reveal and everything, you know, relates to the end of Phantom, both the novel and the the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just I, I I feel like they're they're pretty separate, like because I don't know because in 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 phantom in the in the novel and in the in the musical it kind of like asks the reader like you know does somebody who's done all these terrible things still deserve grace in some way Mm. or you know do they you know or or can they you know can somebody who's who's gone this far you know turn back and and say no more or whatever whereas this kind of like it was all very cut and dry it was like ah well you see we've got the bad man here and we've got the good man here and this is all good. And like I do I do like the, you know, the the theme of um Granny and Nanny. And I think mostly Granny in this case, seeing the um or maybe it was me. I don't know. I don't remember who interacted with him more. Um, but they they see th- through to who he is. Um, Walter Plinge specifically. They see they see through to who he is and they they know that he's not the murder ghost, you know, <laughs> because he's clearly not. <laughs> like Yeah. And they they ping on him instantly when they first meet him they're like yeah that walter plinge he's a he's a person to watch <laughs> like he's he's an interesting person and i think even even agnes like i think agnes sees like a different angle of it like i, I don't think agnes necessarily sees sees like the worst in him but the the way the way that she sees like i think like she thinks walter's the ghost when other people don't you know, other people think that he might be the ghost because he's weird. She like sees that there's more to him than pe- that people aren't like understanding. Yeah, basically, like she suspects him for reasons that are actually like reasonable, versus anybody else who just judges him based on the fact that you know he's stranger than them. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that like comparatively to some of the recent books we've had, this is a book that features a a primary antagonist who. We don't early on get to see a point of view from them and we don't get like in, in Hawkfather, like in a lot of books we were tending to see now that like Terry will introduce an antagonist and we will get some very early scenes from their point of view. So we know why they're doing this and like or what's going on there. And in this there isn't. It's a very like the, the, the answer is great. It's not very in-depth. And I think this might be one of the most two-dimensional antagonists we've had in a Bradshaw book in recent memory. Mm. You don't need to have, like, an interesting and complex villain each time. But it definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't, like, it feels like it's a step into, like, just a sort of simplistic direction. Just sort of, like, streamline the plot. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting, too, because you know, we're, there's no shortage of scenes with Selzella. And the reveal really comes out of nowhere, I feel like mm-hmm. because we've there are even POV scenes with Salzella and there's no hint like he seems perfectly reasonable there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's sort of uh, I mean on second reading there's a couple things that I picked up on like there's this there's a thing where he's like 
you know, he says it in the, the tone of somebody who knows he's the smartest person in the room, things like that. Mm-hmm. But that can be hidden behind the like, you know, this is just a, a bumbling workman who's stumbled into the opera kind of perspective. So yeah, and then I guess maybe there's sort of a broad like, as you put it, Justin, rich people just act different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was mostly just making a joke about like Christine mm-hmm. and how like, like she's just, like her 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 father is very rich and so she's like she's been to school about this and like she's just like I'm ex- because I'm pretty and, and my dad's rich I'm gonna succeed in this mm-hmm. and having uh like no self-awareness right I, that was just like that's one of those things that I sort of just picked up and which those are totally her Carlotta attributes yeah not the Christine attributes, but yes. Yeah, because <laughs> the normal... I have to defend Christine. <laughs> the, the, the normal, like, meta story is the, the you know, woman who has no training and just walks out of the walks out of the mountains one day and joins the opera. You know, that's usually your heroine, and it is in this case. But Christine mm-hmm. doesn't know that she's not the heroine. Yeah, she just assumes that she is. Yeah. The, the scenes with the flowers, I find interesting with christine because you know after her first performance she's you know receives all of these flowers and you know asks agnes to put them into um vases and everything and agnes is like there aren't enough vases buddy (laughs) um and it's like oh well let's let's triage these so the ones from the like very rich people will go into the best vases (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel a lot of kinship to Agnes in a lot of scenes with her, you know, when when she doesn't have like the internal monologue about chocolate. Not that I don't sometimes have internal monologues that revolve around chocolate because cho- yeah. chocolate's great. I mean, seriously. Um, chocolate is a morally neutral food, um, ethical farming considerations aside. Um, hmm. The thing where like, you know, the next day Agnes looks looks at all the flowers and you know, looks at all the ones that she wasn't able to find vases for and they're starting to wilt and she feels so bad and then goes and finds vases for all of them. And it's just like, yeah. it it me. She's too good. It, it me. <laughs> I feel a lot of kinship with Agnes in those scenes. I really want to like her at, at all points and it's just so difficult. It's yeah. It's not difficult to like her. It's difficult to like the scenes that she's in. Yeah. I also I love I love that she says poot instead of swearing. <laughs> she's so cute. Also, ask me about my Agnes Christine shipping agenda anyway. <laughs> we we have a section for this at the end of it that we will that we will uh go in on. Did did we have any buttons for this one? Um, I do. It's it's a like it's a Discworld like it's a witches series specific one. If you throw yourself on Esme's mercy, you better be damn sure you know you deserve to bounce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is just like that's it's such a good summation of like the series, and and we 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 get another bit about how uh, about how witches sort of have removed the need for good and evil because they have an overdeveloped sense of right and wrong. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is something that is um, like, I think that's sort of tied in with that. I think the, the recurring question about the burning house fits in here. Yeah. The, the little monologue that, that granny gives about right, knowing right from wrong 
you know that i think i agree that's like you know she says the trouble is you see if you, that if you do know right from wrong you can't choose wrong but there's there's not a ton of you know socio-political commentary in no, this one th- there's no boots theory yeah. um except for hobnailed boots th- there are hobnailed boots boy nanny is just full chaos goblin in this book <laughs> Nanny's philosophy of life was to do what seemed like a good idea at the time and do it as hard as possible. Phrasing? <laughs> I mean, it's Nanny we're talking about, so no phrasing yeah. needed. Uh, Nanny doesn't deal in double entente. She deals in single entente. That, this, this book really, really made me fall for Nanny especially, and mostly for that reason. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like in between the the goofy nanny granny bits, there's also a lot of really interesting formation of of why what makes them like witches and what makes them sort of separate from mm-hmm. the world, which I thought was really interesting. There's there's a conversation early on, well, that when they're talking about Agnes, uh, there was nothing like that not fitting in feeling to stimulate the old magical nerves. Uh, and then a conversation later when Granny's sort of having a quiet, thoughtful moment with Nanny, and she's like, does it ever get you down the way people don't think properly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the discussion also, uh, I'm just dominating this now because I thought it was really cool, um, witches are drawn to the edges of things. I thought it was a really interesting way of phrasing that. You know, they're drawn to that line, the, the proscenium, the line between the, the, the stage uh, and the the audience. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put that. I like that. Yeah, I think that's cool. Yeah, Terry's witches are really good. And yeah, and it's kind of like like Agnes's journey in this in this book, at least from what I can tell. I, I don't know what happens to her later, or you know, before or whatever. Um, but yeah, it seems like it seems like it's kind of her like clinging to like no, I just want to like have the normal life that everyone wants, and but just constantly being reminded like like no, you're better at like. You're better than that, basically. You know, you you've you've got perspective that not everybody has, so embrace it. You actually think, yeah. Can we talk about my boy Death? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Death gets some funny bits in this book, as he always does. But in the first act, I think it's like really the the highlight of the first half of the book. The 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 framing of the scene being that. Um, Nanny and Granny have stopped in a small town to uh, to spend the night, and the innkeeper uh, uh, asks them to save his son. And Granny is in the uh, is in the farmhouse, and she she does the like she does a okay, leave us alone for the entire night. And Death shows up, and Granny. Uh, I think this is this the first time we see that somebody actually engages with that trope in the series of challenging death to a game. It's definitely referenced before, but I think this is the first time it actually happens. Yeah. So they play, they just play a hand of straight up poker and granny says, I have four Queens and death says, Oh, I lose. All I have is four ones. And, so instead of instead of killing the uh instead of instead of taking the child uh death takes a cow instead and it is it's like there are two ways you can read that scene you can either read it as if you're maybe like coming into this fresh or you maybe haven't read some of the death books death saying oh i only have ones or 
if like you know if you've been read if you've read eighteen books before this <laughs> one a month, you could say, "No, that's my boy being a really clever dude and uh, and having the biggest soft spot for humanity." Yeah, because we have the question of you know whether whether aces are high or not. Yeah, I well, he doesn't say aces. He says one. True. True. In in standard poker, like aces are high. And but you don't call them ones, right? Ones is a thing that you see from like people who like maybe don't know how to play cards or are faking to not play cards. Well, exactly, like exactly. Um, yeah. That I feel like it's you know, potentially potentially death faking at knowing in order to you know get right. the result that Granny wants. Yeah, it's mostly just like a thing of you can read you can read yeah. it as either him being tricked or as him like giving what she wants. And I, I like I think you can have fun with reading it either way. Yeah. yeah. I like that. And I and I kind of like the I, I I hadn't even thought of that interpretation, but I like I like the implication that like Granny knows that she just has to give give him the the um plausible deniability to get away with it. Like like come on, but I know you don't want to do this. Like here's your out and like he's like darn all I have is ones. Like <laughs> I think yeah, that's that's the part that I really and then and then immediately after that, when Death goes to like uh, do do the scythe thing on the cow, he like he stiffens up a little bit, and Granny just like goes the full chiropractor bit on him, <laughs> which is just it's so good. <laughs> which which is like uh, a mirror scene to the the early in the book thing where she does the same thing to the guy but hides it behind like you know tripping and then the question you know when when he asks you know what what she would have done um if she had lost it's just like it would have broken your arm yeah <laughs> so as a foodie i really enjoyed all of the jokes about uh nanny's cooking um <laughs> Yes. What about this one? Maids of Honor? Well, they start out as Maids of Honor, but they end up tarts. (laughs) Yeah. That's so good. There's some very funny puns in this book. There's some good little uh, appearances of death, which is is always fun. Uh, And then there was a section, like, it rattled around in my brain forever. Uh, it's, and I like I quoted it to lots of people not remembering where it was from, which was the whole bit about the IQ of a mob. Is the IQ of its stupidest member divided by the number of people in the mob? And that's <laughs> been something that I've said forever, and I didn't remember where it came from, and now I do. There's also uh, there's also the moment where um, Nanny pulls a replica of that scene from the Mummy of like fitting in with the with the mob crowd and just being like rhubarb rhubarb but it's it is also like a, a thing that apparently some like actors will do in crowd scenes to make it sound like they're saying words as a mob <laughs> oh i didn't know that part yes interesting layers upon layers angry european mobs the great the the, the third greatest enemy of the x-men <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I love a good, I, I love a good angry Bob in fiction. That's <laughs> I loved Andre, the undercover policeman, especially, you know, having the, having the undercover policeman to investigate undercover crimes, mm-hmm. um, is such a great Vimes thing. Yeah. Yeah. And having the extremely obvious Nobby and detritus pulling the pulling the 
uh, attention away from the actual policeman. It's it's sleight <laughs> yeah. of hand is what it is. Yeah, it's Vimes is a bastard and he thinks like a bastard. My my favorite like my favorite joke in this book, which is far funnier to me than it should be, is just I'm Count De Nobs, and this is Count Detritus. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's like, no, you're under cuffs. Look, you're, you're looking all official, and you've got your badges. Put that away. <laughs> just the entire bit with them. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's not, like, particularly clever or anything. It's just like, oh, look, these are the things I recognize. They're funny. Yeah. <laughs> They're offered drinks, and Detritus is like, oh, no, we can't drink while we're on duty. And I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> they're just they, Terry brought up my Terry brought up like some of my dumb favorite toys yeah. and they're... yeah and you know, and and I wonder whether whether having Andre there was Vimes's idea but having the other two having you know, Nobby and Detritus that feels like a carrot idea to me maybe potentially you know that that Carrot, Carrot is also a lot more clever than people give him credit for. Yes. Carrot, I think, is progressing quickly from himbo to, um, I don't know, what's the what's the smart and hunky? Uh, like, so smart, hunky, and uh, decent. It's called a decent man. Mm. <laughs> yes. That, yeah. That's, that's just a decent man. Yeah, I know. He's smart, he's hunky, and he respects women. He's a decent man. Um, <laughs> like, you know, there's, the, there's, the, there's the triangle of what happens if you remove one, yeah. one side of it. And Ugh, I can't remember what the other one is. If he's nice, or... Um, I think the other one has to be if he's mean, right? Or if, like... Yeah, there's, like, your jock. Oh, yeah. Jock, decent man... I'm trying to remember the third one. There's like another one, but I can't remember it because I'm oh. Well, I think it's I think it's just Jock, decent man, and himbo. I think because I think Jock is the one if you take away the niceness. But but there's the one if you take away the. I don't know. We're all math lady gif right now. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> anyway, moving on from himbo talk. Uh... <laughs> Who's the most himbo? Yeah. Okay. We we get it out of this on bad pod. I feel days. like there's some like proto trans narrative in this too. Because, like, you know, Agnes, you know, chooses, is just living by a different name and is trying mm-hmm. to re, like, trying to reinvent herself. And Nanny is just like, yeah, sure, whatever. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. There's like one specific passage. I wish I knew the page of it. But, but yeah, there's like one specific part where, like, Nanny specifically says, like, you know, <laughs> I, w- I wish I remember exactly how it's phrased, but it's literally just her being like, I always thought it was a good idea to like respect people's like new identities if that's what they wanted. Like, boop. oh, let me basically, Nanny Ox said trans rights. Like, that's <laughs> all right. Found one of the lines, or at least the one that got me thinking about it. You recall, you recall, young Agnes Knit said Nanny as Granny Weatherwax tried to find the milk. Granny hesitated. Agnes, who calls herself Perdita Dax, <laughs> Perdita X, said Nanny. She at least respected anyone's right to recreate themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's. I think that yeah, there's definitely something there. Yeah. And now I feel bad about the fact that we've all been calling her Agnes the entire recording. But she, well, yeah. but she still internally refers to herself as Magnus. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like in her POV chapters, like she still considers, and I, and then by the end of the book, I think she is pretty pretty well embracing Agnes again. I think. Yeah, I think it's a lot more of the 
I am going through a goth phase, and I'm going to take on I'm going to take on the persona Ebony Dementia Darkness Raven Way. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. We got we got one by immortal uh, reference in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> on on the subject of of uh, Agnes, um, and it kind of plays into like the the clumsy handling of her character, but it's also I I, I think it's just worth noting. Like I don't think this is like. I don't think it's it's huge, but I think the fact that Agnes is the one, arguably even more so than Walter, but Agnes is the one who's like constantly being like mistreated to some extent for specifically how she looks, um, mm. weirdly makes her like the the one of the stronger parallels to Eric the Opera Ghost. Like like that's that's the Phantom of the Opera's whole deal is that people treat him terribly because of the way he looks. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that our our main protagonist, who's a, a ray of sunshine, um, is is also like struggling with that. I just think like I don't know. It's just interesting that it's that she's the one who like is, has the closest parallel to that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, I don't I don't want to go back because we already spent a, a solid chunk of the the recording. But like, then there's all of the stuff that they say in the beginning, where it's just like I mean, that's what opera stars used to look like. Why are we so yeah. why are we so up about this? It's, yeah. Salzella. Yeah. Uh which is probably a Salieri joke. Yeah, I saw I read something that uh, something about being a salt seller mm-hmm. and I don't know. I have uh, yeah, I <laughs> I rewrote the end of the fat lady singing joke. Uh hopefully it's a little less gross. <laughs> um I tried. Um, and also I tried to sort of, well, you know, anyway, here goes. Mr. Bucket looked desperately at the assemblage as exclamation points leaking out of his ears. Why aren't they leaving? Three question marks. Isn't a death on stage enough? Four question marks. Also a footnote, of course, because this is a Terry work. Uh, obviously death is always on stage, although the death of careers has always maintained a respectful distance. Uh, Andre replied, they're waiting for the fat lady to sing. All eyes, save two cold sapphires, pivoted toward Agnes. Agnes, feeling Perdita clawing at her soul with the injustice of the metatextual role thrust upon her by the author, sorted toward the wings with a resigned determination, only to be shoved aside by a vision in hobnailed boots. I was born for the stage, dearie. As the music swelled in a vain attempt to pad the ears of the audience, Granny muttered, Githa always had a way with foreign gab. Henry Slug's translator, still steaming slightly, set up. Il riccio non può essere infastidito affatto. That's a new one. The audience's, reac- the audience's reaction was, unfortunately, indescribable. Um, Would you like to a- translate that for so, us? Yeah. Uh, uh, literally translated, it's the hedgehog couldn't be bothered at all, which is a very silly nanny joke. Uh, it's a song. <laughs> it's a clip- Really, it's the hedgehog couldn't be buggered at all, which is a very dirty song that Nanny repeatedly sings in other books. <laughs> I I really I really like that rewrite, and it it highlights to me that there's so much more that could have been done here. I actually like the fact that we've got a fat protagonist, and there's so much that Terry could have done with that. And he's Mm -hmm. like close to understanding. He's grasping. He's he's, He's, he's like trying for it. He's like almost there to understanding like, and, and it's even like, 
in in there where it's like, you know, why are all these people judging Agnes by how she looks, etc. And then it's like, buddy, stop. Just, but I but I need you to stop, stop. doing it. Is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand when all the townsfolk do it. That's fine. I mean, you know, not fine, but obviously makes sense narratively, but can you stop? Yeah. Mr. Terry, sir. And it just gives such, like, the way he treats the whole thing gives me such narrative whiplash, too, because, like, right at the beginning, it's like, Lanker's always bred strong, capable women. A Lanker farmer needed a wife who'd think nothing of beating a wolf to death with her apron when she went out to get some firewood. Like, I don't know. It's just, yeah. he goes back and forth on it so fast that it's like, you could have done a better job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, if, if you had excised... 80% of the description, about 80% of the internal monologue, and added in a little bit more socio-political commentary type of thing, it would be great. Um, like occasionally but, be like, you know, actually we should get her down to costuming for Valkyrie, you know, that sort of thing. There's also, it was very close to saying something meaningful about like disordered eating among ballet dancers and other performers, etc. Didn't hit the mark of actually doing it. At least for me, all of that made this tired trope fall even flatter because like I expected Terry to be better than this. Like, you know, we know that he's better than this or he should be better than this. And the fact that it was like, you know, you can't help but think of what it could have been and what it could have been is so interesting or so much better that it just ends up even more disappointing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you share my thoughts on that, Justin? I Yeah, I think like you, you could have done some interesting things with related to Agnes with like, eh, especially with like how theater... Like, this didn't used to be a big, like, as much of a thing, but even, like, like how it's sort of, like, become a hyper-focused thing, even, like, the 90s, and even more so now. Um, there's uh, about, like, seeking, like, perfection or idealized body forms. Um, if you go through my Twitter feed, I, I could probably put some stuff there, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but there's, uh, I think it's just, like, it, it's one of those things that it's, like, it's not anything we haven't seen before from Terry. It's just all concentrated in one place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's unfortunate. I think it's something that maybe like, it's one of those things that I, I would sort of hope that if like, it was something that was done today, it might get caught better by an editor and get rewritten a little bit mm-hmm. more. Hard to agree. It feels to me along the lines of, you know, as, as with, a lot of things that have fallen into this category where like consciously Terry has realized at this point that there's something wrong in the universe with how people are treated, but he hasn't actually examined his own personal biases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, interesting references to other pieces of Discworld. I enjoyed Nanny's Scumble, which apparently is also known as Suicider. that's so good what a a good pun and I'm always here for library and Mm -hmm. and B.S. Johnson organ content and he gets to conduct too he gets to conduct too Detritus apparently has already been promoted above Nobby since the last Scards book he deserves it 
the thing that made the thing that felt very strange to me, but maybe also character appropriate, was how freaked out Nanny was by Mrs. Palms because she's spent the previous four books being portrayed as broadly speaking earthy. So you'd think that she'd be pretty sex positive, but then she comes to the seamstress's guild, hem hem, and is like rocked, I guess. I mean, she comes around in the end, but like she's super freaked out about it. Again, outsider perspective. Too. So, and also, I read this a little while ago, so I don't remember the exact specifics of the scene. But uh, the the feeling that I got was that like Nanny was more weirded out that Granny wasn't weirded out. Ah, uh, you know what? I think you're probably right. Like that that and, that was what I, I think got. She was weirded but, out by the fact that you know, was it was it our Nev had been there, <laughs> right? And, you know, realizing realizing that your son, grandson, question marks, um, you know, frequents uh, uh, the Seamstress's Guild, hem, hem, uh, which I only just got that joke. God. God. <laughs> That's really good. Um, yeah, it, it, it continues along this this through line uh, through that we see in a bunch of the books with, with Nanny being like, you know, okay for me, but not for thee. Yeah, that's that's true of a lot of things for her. Mm-hmm. Anyway, those were the ones that I wanted to call out. I have a very important round world uh, thing here, <laughs> which um, I just found by like I, I typically like will poke around on the wiki page of a book. So as it turns out, Masquerade has been adapted. Oh God, that's meta. <laughs> for the stage. Oh my God. Uh, partly uh, with Stephen Briggs, uh, who is a uh, like what a who's uh, somebody who works like on a lot of like adapted works for Discworld. Like he yeah uh, he was the co-author for the Discworld Companion, but he worked with a Prague theater company called. I'm gonna per- I'm gonna butcher this because I don't speak Czech. Uh, Devaldov's. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. I apologize to all members of the Czech Republic. Their adaptation ran for five years. Oh my god. Um, it, per- Not it, bad. it premiered in 2006. That's like a phantom <laughs> level um, run. A- um, so yeah, it was it was Masquerade right. or the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> so apparently it was just this weird like mix adaptation, <laughs> which honestly is great. Oh my um, god. And Terry was there. I need to um, find it. And uh, Terry uh, attended their closing performance in 2011. Oh my I would God. absolutely watch that. Yeah, I, I want to very badly now. It's a very, like, heartwarming thing there. <laughs> it's like, somebody liked this book enough to produce a theater, to produce a stage adaptation, and then ran it for five years. <laughs> which is... I'm, I'm genuinely impressed with five years. Covered Andrew Lloyd Webber with all sorts of butter. Um, there's a there's a reference to Good Omens in this, uh, or rather, a reference to a misprint, uh, an error in uh, an edition of Good Omens. The line we're going to have to get Mister Cripslock to engrave page eleven again. He said mournfully, "He's spelt famine with seven letters." Is a reference to a a an error in the Corgi paperback edition of Good Omens where uh, Famine spells his name with with seven letters as opposed to uh, six letters. Interesting. Well, and, um, and of course, Agnes Knit is um, 
surprisingly close in sound to Agnes Nutter. That's true. So that's another Good Omens thing. Uh, Nobby paraphrases Sherlock Holmes a few times, which is very funny. Yeah, well, I think, said Nobby, that when you have ruled out the impossible, what's left, however improbable, ain't worth hanging around on a cold night wondering about when you could have been getting on the outside of a big drink. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Good, good, good. I, I had a feeling. I was like, and, it's probably the probable there's also one, the Cable but... Street Particulars, which is... Yeah. Yeah. Baker Street Regulars, yeah. Regulars. Yeah. Yeah. We've got the, uh, the Joy of Snacks. Yeah, the Joy Probably. of Snacks, which of course is a reference to the Joy of Sex, which is a reference to the Joy of Cooking. And I'll note that you can actually purchase with real world money the official Discworld cookbook written, air quotes, written by Nanny Og. Although <laughs> you know, within the within the fiction, um, she had to she was forced by the publishers to remove the more amusing recipes. Um, however (laughs) it does involve a lot of recipes that involve bananas or two potatoes or uh, a bundle of celery and two potatoes or you 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 get you get the gist here um it's it's pretty amusing um i have not cooked anything out of it but um but it's pretty funny that's real good there's a comment here of is is Granny <laughs> Batman? And I don't know who wrote that, but please, please elaborate. It's it's me. I mean, I didn't write it, but I could at least. It's almost more of a meme, but it also is part of like a like writing trend that has appeared in like I'd say it's sort of become more prevalent in like the last fifteen years of like this sub character of Batman who's basically Bat God. Who like can do everything and is great at everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> and is um, ahead of the reader and the author. Yeah, and apparently can stop a sword with her bare hand. <laughs> yep. Although the the little bit where she like boils off the the energy from Nanny's cooking when all of the men in the room are just like smoking under the collar. Well, except for uh, Henry Slug was. Uh, <laughs> Very funny. That I'll say that that is so, the one thing. So, what was his thing supposed to be? Like, what was what was like supposed to be like pastiche? Uh like Pavarotti or any of the great uh, like any of the uh, the um the the great you know large tenors. The thing that I was extremely grateful for, having you know not remembered a lot of the details of the book going in, I had this absolute fear that Agnes and Slug were going to end up together Mm. um, just because they're both large. Mm -hmm. One fear. And I was extremely afraid of that. Not, you know, not because either of them or both of them don't deserve love, but because it is a very, very lazy trope. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, the, thankfully that did not happen. But also witches mostly don't seem to get that. Nanny is the rare exception, although she wore out four husbands. Uh. <laughs> well, and, and you know, Magret, Magret and Ferenc have, have probably figured things out by now, right? Yeah, but I she's mean, she's sort of not a witch anymore. It's been it's been like three months. They 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 have to have figured it out. They have all sorts of instructional instructional manuals. Uh, did you want to touch on Shipping Corner? We are going a lot longer than I expected for this book, to be honest. I mean. 
if I'm going to ship anybody in this book, it's going to be Agnes and Christine based solely on, let me see, I took a note, uh, 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 the line where it says specifically Agnes liked looking at Christine. <laughs> so done, done yeah. and done. <laughs> They're going to kiss. It's fine. Um, no, I really, I mean, it, it was just in the early part of the book. Uh, I was just like, Oh, they're like, they're kind of cute because like for, for a hot minute, they're like kind of friends and like, yeah, Christine is like completely kind of in her own world and, you know, only kind of half paying attention, but she does like genuinely like seem to enjoy Agnes's company. Um, so that was nice, but that's it. That's all. Minna has previously gone on record as, as shipping nanny and granny. So I will put that in for her. Yeah. 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 I feel like this was a particularly strong book for that vibe. Um, they're, they're kind of like the antagonism between them was really strong, but like, it was great. I mean, they have big married vibes. Like they're, you know, they're clearly life partners to some extent or another. So I feel like Grebo and the squid had a brief thing. (laughs) (laughs) Grebo was such a joy. Um, and previously when we've had, Grebo, and especially human form Grebo, it's been really pretty problematic. And this time, this time around, Terry nailed it. You know, that, you know, really leaned into a lot of the like cat things, leaned away from the tomcat things. The thing of like not being able to quite control the morphogenic field was hilarious. And the like, you know, I really, really nailed the cat thing of like that point where he's like, this seems like a lot of work for a kipper, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that is, that's happened every time I've tried to train any of my cats to do anything is that, that they'll like be on board with it, with the treat until a certain point where they're like, they're like this is a lot of work that you're asking me to do. <laughs> It, and you're giving me one treat. This, yeah. mm, mm, no, no. Like this is exchange rate. We need to work on this. God, that reminds me though of the the scene where where cat form Grebo is like hiding from the two witches and and nanny and Granny's like getting angry and Nanny's you know a little bit of kindness never hurts and Nanny Granny's just like yank and and it says or a lot of cruelty sure. Poor Grebo. <laughs> At least he got some caviar this time. Yeah. Are we done? Should we move on to ratings? I give this book four and a half out of 12 Night Blooming Roses. Uh, I'm giving it two out of six helpings of chocolate pudding with extra special sauce. I'm giving it two out of six chorus singers. Do I remember how many singers there are supposed to be in a chorus? No, but there are six in this theoretical review. And you only get two of them. And I would give it a four out of seven fainting sopranos. Excellent. For for a better than average um, Phantom-esque adaptation. All right, Justin. Now it's time for the bit. Oh, uh, yeah, let's do this. Um, what's the next book? Feet of Clay. Thank you. I could not remember what the... Uh, Timey wimey. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, book 19, which, I mean, is going to be our 20th book because time is an illusion. Punch um, time, doubly so. Yeah. All right. Which, uh, you know, the first four words of this, I'm just going to have to ham up because it is possibly the the uh, 
the antithesis of my bit. It's murder in Discworld. Which ordinarily is no big deal. But what bothers Watch Commander Sir Sam Vibes is that the unusual deaths of these three elderly Ankhmore Porkians do not bear the clean, efficient marks of the Assassin's Guild. An apparent lack of any motive is also quite troubling. All Vimes has are some tracks of white clay and more of those bothersome clue things that only serve to muck up an investigation. The anger of a fearful populace is already being dangerously channeled towards the city's small community of golems, the mindless, absurdly industrious creatures of baked clay who can occasionally be found toiling in the city's factories. And certainly highly placed personages are using the unrest as an excuse to resurrect a monarchy, which would be bad enough even if the king they were grooming wasn't as empty-headed as your typical animated pottery. So, this yeah. This is like the third, this is the third king of Ogmore Park we've mm-hmm. tried uh-huh. to find. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And it's even more absurd and even funnier, I think. But also a really good book. Okay, cool. Cameron, do we have somebody special coming on for that? or? Yeah, we're going to grab Evan again. Cool, 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 cool. As a golem specialist. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is... A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.